Well, throughout this day, we gather alongside millions, millions, hundreds of millions of professing Christians throughout the world to celebrate the most pivotal, the most monumental, the most singularly specific historical event in the history of mankind and in our lives. We are gathered this Easter Sunday to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That the Son of God came and took on flesh and lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could never live, and he laid down that life as a penalty, to pay the penalty, to pay the sacrifice for sin. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. He now sits as he ascended into heaven at the right hand of his Father, God Almighty. We've gathered here, not just on this Easter Sunday, but on every Sunday, to celebrate and praise God for the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. But let's face it. There may be some of you here who still have questions or doubts about the plausibility of a man rising from the dead. And still many more, if not all of us, who are here, maybe as believers, we we believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. We accept and affirm the resurrection of Christ as the most monumental point in history. We agree with all of it. We believe that this was the supernatural work of God to raise Christ from the dead, and we seek to live in light of the ruling and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. And yet somehow this historic event does not come to bear. We miss its significance in our daily lives. We affirm that it is true, but we live as though it's an irrelevant truth. Yes, I agree with the doctrine of the resurrection, but practically, so what? What difference does the resurrection of Christ have on me today and every day? How does this event, no matter how monumental, no matter how significant that happened almost 2,000 years ago, how does it affect me right here and right now? The resurrection of Christ is more than an essential but abstract Christian doctrine. It is a life-altering, life-transforming truth. You see, I have a big task in front of me. More important than trying to argue some proofs to get you to to give an intellectual head nod to the plausibility of Christ's resurrection, I'm seeking here, my goal for this time together is to go much deeper, to think theologically, and to think practically about how that ought to change every aspect of our lives. I want us to see how this fundamental and essential life-transforming truth affects our lives. How this truth ought to change us today and every day from the inside out. You see, the Bible doesn't provide us with scientific proofs of how God supernaturally raised Jesus from the grave. That's kind of the point. It's supernatural. The Bible just presupposes it. 
It says God is sovereign, God is powerful, God is wise, God is able, God rose him, raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand, done, done, and done. Historical fact. But it's a fact that changes our lives. And so what I want us to see are the effects that Christ's resurrection has on our lives. And not just upon our lives, but upon history and upon the very cosmos. This is a universe-altering event that has taken place. And to do that, I want us to look at four different passages in Ephesians that explicitly highlights the effects of Christ's resurrection. So I'm, I'm deviating from my normal pattern in preaching. So if you're here on a Sunday morning, I take one passage and I just unpack it. Right? And then I explain how that, what that means for us, how that applies to us. But I'm, I'm kind of stretching myself a bit, right? I wanted to preach on the resurrection, right? I wanted to deal with that specifically, but I didn't want to get outside of Ephesians. So I'm doing both. And I want us to see how the whole book of Ephesians actually is substantiated, is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so you're lucky that I'm just not preaching through the whole of Ephesians, Okay? Just doing four specific passages where it's mentioned. And so they should be up here, right? We've got Ephesians 1, 17 through 23 is passage number 1. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 as passage number 2. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 as number 3. And 5, 8 through 14 as number 4. Now again, the resurrection undergirds every aspect of Ephesians. So there is nothing in Ephesians that is true apart from the reality of Christ's resurrection. And every part of Ephesians is the effect of Christ's resurrection. But we're going to focus on these specific passages where Christ's resurrection is mentioned so that we might see and understand just how fundamental and essential this truth is for our daily lives. You see, if I put it simply... We have new life in Christ because Christ was raised to life. We have new life because Christ was raised to life. This is the main idea that I'm trying to get across, and I want to unwrap that for us as we look at these passages. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 23, it's page 976, and the Bible's provided in the chair. See, guys, I got away from 978. I just went backwards instead of forward. All right? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. In this passage, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we might know what is the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is, get this, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, the effective working of his great might, that he worked when he raised Christ from the dead, there it is, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so the first effect of Easter in Ephesians is that the resurrection is the visible display, is the proof that Jesus is the exalted Lord over all. The resurrection of Christ proved to all who Jesus really is. He is the exalted Lord over everything. 
every name, every rule, every authority, every power for all time. All things were put under his feet. Now, it's important to be really clear at this point that Paul is not suggesting that Jesus somehow became something that he was not after his resurrection. And so when we just think about who Jesus is, passages like John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 tell us that in the beginning was the Word, that is Christ. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. And so what he's saying is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not created. Rather, he created all things. He was with God from the beginning. This is huge. Because if we're going to understand what it means for Jesus to be raised and to be exalted, we've got to get this right. The Son of God eternally existed with the Father. So Jesus was not exalted to be a God. I mean, even Jesus' own prayer in John 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is about to go and suffer and die on the cross, and he's praying for his disciples. And he says in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. But you wait, 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 Chet, that sounds a lot like Jesus is saying that he's not God, but is sent by God to do the will of God and that he will be glorified for it. Well, this is where you come to verse five, where he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So what he's saying there is that the Son of God had glory with the Father from even before the creation of the world. This is key. These are a couple of really important passages. There are many others that we could look at that help us to understand what Paul is praying here in Ephesians 1, 17 through 23. When Paul prays that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, so that we could see who Jesus really is, how, how he raised Christ from the dead and exalted him above all rule and power and so on. It doesn't mean that Jesus became something that he was not, but that God has used the resurrection as the proof, as the display in order to show forth and reveal for all people and all time that Jesus is the reigning Lord over all. His true identity, his true power, his true authority is revealed as Christ is exalted over all things. And not just for you and me, but there will come a day when all people from all time, spiritual authorities and earthly powers alike will recognize that Jesus is Lord over all to the glory of God the Father. And how does God reveal that to us? How does God display it? How does God show it for the world to see? In the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ reveals who he truly is. The exalted son of God over all that exists. I mean, even in Jesus' own ministry, Jesus predicted his sufferings, death, and resurrection. He made three very, very specific predictions about what he was going to do. 
And he did this. He gave this to his disciples so that he, he said to them, listen, so that when this happens, you might know that I am, am indeed the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus makes these predictions to prove who he really was. And his resurrection is essential for us knowing and understanding that Jesus is Lord over all. He is the Son of God. And though he's fully man, living, breathing, suffering, dying, his resurrection proved that Jesus is reigning Lord over all. Now look again at Ephesians 1, verses 20 and following. Is there anything that is outside of Jesus' authority? Is there anything that's outside of his control? Christ, or God exalted him at his right hand above what? Above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. Did he leave anything out? What about every name? Every name that is named. What about time? Is this just kind of particular to Jesus' own time period, but we're here 2,000 years later, so that doesn't really matter to us? No, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. He put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the resurrection is the guarantee of Christ's exaltation. It is proof for us, a demonstration to us that he who created all there is reigns over all there is, including every earthly and spiritual authority throughout the entire cosmos. It proves that he is Lord. It reveals who he is. Jesus is king over all. Okay, so what? What difference does that make? Well, if Jesus rose from the grave and he is now exalted to the right hand of God, which he did, that means that he is Lord over everyone and everything. He is the authority. He is the king. He is above every name, including mine. If Christ created the cosmos and he died to redeem the cosmos and was raised to be the exalted ruler over the cosmos, then he is Lord and I am not. You are not. There is one king to be worshipped. There is one king to be followed. There is one king to command and we are not him. And you can either accept it or you can reject it, but the consequences are severe. I mean, let's just think about it for a minute. What do you think the penalty would be for rejecting the king of the universe? The king of the universe that died to overturn death, right? He died to kill death. Well, if In his death and resurrection, he killed death. Then the rejection of the one true king will not simply be death, but eternal condemnation from the very king of the universe. This is serious. Acts chapter 17 verse 31 says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by Christ whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all. He has given us proof that we might know and we might believe. He's given assurance to everyone. And how did he do it? By raising Jesus from the dead. What proof do you need? 
that Jesus is reigning Lord over all? God says, look at his resurrection. Those who reject this God-given assurance of Christ's resurrection will be eternally judged. But for those who accept the resurrected Christ as Lord, they will receive eternal life. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So those who truly believe submit themselves to Christ's lordship. They want to live their lives in such a way as to display that Jesus is king over all. Well, how do you do that practically? Just by saying so? Just by doing certain things or whatever? Well, look at verses 22 and 23. (laughs) The way that we display... Our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a world that rejects him. The way that we visibly display our submission to Christ is by being a part of his church. This is key. He put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I I know that that's a bit cryptic, but here's what it means. The church, his body, is the visible demonstration that Jesus is supreme Lord over all that there is. That's what it means. The church is. You can't do that apart from the church. No morally reputable, good person who professes Christ but lives autonomously apart from the Christ. They can't show that. But together as we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to each other as we saw in chapter 5 verse 21, then we can. We actually display to the world that Christ is reigning Lord. But even more than that, we're given this promise in verses 19 and 20 that that same immeasurable power that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him above all things is at work toward us who believe. This is huge. The immeasurable, resurrecting, Christ-exalting power is at work in any and every situation towards those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ proves that God is at work in you and me. So if you're ever at those points in your life where you're just like, I don't know what you're doing, God. I don't know where you're at. What you're meant to do at that point is to look back at the resurrection of Christ and know that that power is promised to us. It is working in us to transform our hearts. And we know that this is true. We know that God will win. Why? Because Christ has been raised and exalted to the right hand of God. But even more than that, Ephesians lays out what this immeasurable power at work within us looks like. And so we're going to see that in the next three passages. His power is at work so that we might exalt the risen Lord, but it does it in, in these three particular ways. And so let's move on to the second passage. Not only does the resurrection display that Jesus is exalted Lord over all, but second in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, 
It is through Christ's resurrection that we were made alive together with Christ. That immeasurable power of God in chapter 1, verse 19, is at work towards us who believe, and that results in a dramatic transformation. It results in new life, that we go from death to life. We go from enslavement to sin to now freedom to obey Christ in God. We go from being children of God's wrath to now children of God's love. I mean, just look at the first three verses there in chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we all were. We were all dead in our sin. We were all enslaved by our sin. We were all condemned in our sin. Hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. But when that Christ-exalting, Christ-resurrecting power came upon us, it says in verse 4 and through 7, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and seated us, with, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show, display, demonstrate for us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Because God is so gracious and so loving and so merciful, God took those who were dead in their sin and made past tense, them alive together with Christ. He raised them up together with Christ. He seated them together with Christ in the heavenly places. And all of this happened past tense. It's done. You have been made alive. You have been raised with Christ. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Done, done, and done. All of it has already happened. When Jesus was made alive, in 33 AD, all of those whom God has saved by his grace, past, present, and future, if you're trusting in Christ, then that's you and me, you were made alive together with him. When Jesus was raised from the dead, all those whom God has saved by his grace, past, present, and future, were raised together with him. And all of those who were Saved by God's grace, past, present, and future, we're also seated with him at the right hand of God. And how is all of that possible? The same immeasurable power that has effectively worked to raise Christ from the dead and publicly exalt him over all things is the same power that raised all true believers with Christ and exalted them together with him. Isn't that amazing? You see, Jesus didn't just come and live a perfect life and die to be a good moral example for us to follow. Oh, God will forgive you for your sins. You just got to kind of be like Jesus. No, that's not the point. He obeyed and suffered and died and rose again to bring life to the dead. 
If Jesus was not raised, then we are still dead in our sin. There is no hope of salvation apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. All of those spiritual blessings that you read about in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the fact that before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him, our sanctification, the fact that God adopted us as his sons through Jesus Christ, none of that happens apart from Christ. All that lavish grace that God pours out upon us, the fact that he redeems us and forgives us of our sin, the fact that he makes known the mystery of his will, that he is going to reconcile all things together in Christ, the fact that God has given us an unfading, imperishable inheritance, which is ours, the fact that he seals us with the promised Holy Spirit, none of that is true if Jesus is still dead in the ground. None of it. There is no hope. There is no salvation. You're still dead in your sin. If we are not united to the resurrected Christ by God's immeasurable power, And we are not saved by his grace. You see, Christ's resurrection from the dead proves that sin and death have been defeated. It confirmed that Jesus' sacrifice for sin was enough to pay for the penalty of God's wrath against our sin. It confirmed that in Christ alone, we have redemption by his blood. And only in Christ alone are we forgiven of our sins. Christ's resurrection guaranteed that all of those who turn away from their sin and trust in his death and resurrection will have eternal life. They will be forever reconciled to God. If Christ is dead, then you are dead. But if Christ is alive, then by God's grace, you have been made alive. And for all eternity, you will behold the wonder of the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. This is fantastic. This This has to go beyond giving a head nod to the plausibility of a resurrection or the fact that I hold to a Christian doctrine. It's transformational. Salvation, this new life in our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is a gift from God. Let me just look at chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Instead, we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This grace for salvation, this grace for new life, this grace that makes us new creations for good works is given only through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so friends, rejoice. And the very fact that you can profess faith in Christ is owing to to his resurrection. There is no salvation without it. So, the resurrection of Christ publicly displayed that Jesus is the exalted Lord over all. It is through his resurrection that we are made alive together with him. And the third effect of the resurrection from chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, is that we are united in the church to help one another grow in maturity in Christ. 
Now that immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe that raised Christ from the dead and exalted him over every name not only saved us, making us alive in Christ, but it says that we were made alive together in Christ. That's a very, very key word. In fact, that word together is also suffixed onto raised and seated, right? Our English translations leave it out just because it's a bit redundant, but it's huge. Together, together, together. We can't think about salvation as individuals only because we're only getting half the truth. We have to think about it together. As you continue to walk through the book of Ephesians, the very next section, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, speak how we are united through the resurrected Christ, that we have been brought near in him, that we have been made one in him. Verses 15 and 16 says that God, through Christ's law-satisfying sacrifice, created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body, thereby killing the hostility. Through his death and resurrection, all who are truly in Christ were joined together and are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Chapter 2, verse 22. So all of those social barriers that we would erect in our sin to separate us, to help us to live individual lives apart from everyone else, all of those have been destroyed and demolished in light of Christ's resurrection, and we are now being built together as a unified body. In chapter 3, moving on. Verse 12, through God's revelation of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ, we, have now, we now have access with confidence through our faith in him. What access do you have through a dead man? In chapter 3, verse 17, God strengthens us with power through his spirit in our inner being so that the living Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. How does a dead man dwell in your heart through faith? He doesn't. And also that we might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. That's maturity in Christ. And chapter 3 ends with this beautiful doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think including raising Christ from the dead, according to his power at work within us, that same Christ-raising Son of God, exalting power, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so, beginning in chapter 4 through the end of the book, Paul then answers that question, so what? What does it mean for the exalted Lord Jesus To rise from the grave and save us from our sin? Well, 4 verses 1 through 3, we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Basically, what he's telling us is to live in our new identity, to be who we are, to live that new life that we now have because Christ was raised from the dead. Right? And so we are to be humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit that we already have in the bond of peace. In verses 4 through 6, we are to be united around the essential Christian doctrine that there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, that is the resurrected and reigning Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. 
And then we come to verses 7 through 10, and here is where we see the resurrection made explicit again. By grace, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus some 30 years after Jesus died. So how is a dead Jesus giving gifts to the church in Ephesus? Unless he's raised. But you keep going. Therefore, it says, when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? That he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And so the resurrected and ascended and exalted Christ gave gifts to us all. Verse 11 adds that Christ also gave the church leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Why? Verse 12. To equip the saints, that is believers, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all, all of us, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he does this so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, by speaking the truth in love to each other, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ, in whom the whole body, being joined together with every joint with which it is equipped makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Guys, do you see how that's connected there? How our unity being drawn together as a church is meant to lead towards our maturity and it's meant to be that, not being left as a child, easily deceived, falling prey to any wind of doctrine. The resurrected Christ united us together. He gave us gifts. He gave us church leaders, including you and me, to build up the body of Christ for maturity. Each one of us helping the other to grow in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Without the resurrection, there is no unity. There are no gifts being given, and there is no reaching maturity in him. So what does that mean for us? Again, friends, Jesus didn't just die and rise to save a bunch of individuals from their sins. You have to think about salvation in bigger terms than that. See, according to Titus chapter 2, verse 14, he died and rose in order to redeem a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. It's a people. It's not a bunch of individual people's. A people who are zealous for good works. He died and rose for his body. He died and rose for his bride that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless before him. And how did he plan for this process of transformation to occur here in the midst of this evil and sinful world that we live in? As we live as isolated, autonomous Christians, just me and Jesus? No. God's eternal process for maturity comes through the church, that he united us 
together. He gave gifts and leaders to each one of us so that we might help one another, that we might build one another up through local, loving, covenant bodies to reach maturity in Christ. You cannot and you will not attain to the fullness of Christ apart from his body, apart from his family, apart from his kingdom citizens, apart from his bride. The purpose of your salvation is not that you are simply saved from the guilt and consequences of your sin. You were saved to bring glory to Christ. As we are united together to serve and to edify each other, we are transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. We become more like him. And as we do, we, the church, display. We show forth. We shine the power and the wisdom and the glory and the majesty of God to the watching world in ways that no individual autonomous Christian, no matter how good, no matter how faithful, no matter how self-professing, but individual can do. We are not meant to go it alone. And you will not display the glory of our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ apart from the church. But together, together we can and we do. Friends, it is huge. It's about the glory of Christ. Christ died and rose to unite you in the church so that you might reach maturity in Christ and help others to do the same. And so do not settle for anything less. Do you realize that if you do, you are trading the eternal purpose of God Almighty for trinkets, for earthly purposes that turn to dust and are long forgotten. To fail to unite and to fail to pursue maturity in Christ is to tell the world and to tell yourself that Christ is dead. Is that really what you believe? If not, then show it with your lives. And so the resurrection of Christ displayed that Jesus is the exalted Lord over all. It's through his resurrection that we are made alive together with Christ and united in the church to help one another grow to maturity in Christ. And fourth, it's because Christ has risen from the grave that we can now expose darkness to the light of Christ. We have new life because Christ was raised to life. We can now live differently and are called to live differently because of this new life that we now have in him. And so in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, we are exhorted to no longer live as unbelievers do in the futility of their minds. They've become darkened in their understanding, alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of uh, immorality. But that is not the way that you have learned Christ. Those who are taught in Christ, they've received the truth in Christ, are called to put off 
the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, which is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of their minds, and to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of the resurrected Christ in true righteousness and holiness. And as implications, we do things like it says in in chapter 4, verse 25 and following. We put away falsehood and speak the truth in love. We work through our anger so as to give no opportunity to the devil. We no longer steal, but rather labor, not just to get, but actually to give. We are to use our words to build up and give grace to those who hear rather than corrupting them because we do not want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We put away bitterness and wrath and malice and forgive one another as Christ forgave us. We seek to imitate God as his beloved children and forgive and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And we put away all immorality and impurity and covetousness in our words and thoughts and attitudes and actions because we in no way want to be partners with those who practice these things that will lead to everlasting judgments. And then we're given the charge in chapter 5, verses 8 through 14, again, where we see the resurrection made explicit. For at one time, you were darkness. That's who you were. But now, because of the resurrection of Christ, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Excuse me. But instead, expose them. For it is uh, is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But if anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And what he's saying here is that as children of light... Those who have been freed from darkness in our own hearts and called to walk as children of light, we are, we are to do this by exposing darkness, both in our hearts and in the world. We expose it to the light of the resurrected Christ. He's talking about change here. He's talking about transformation, that process of sanctification as we seek to live according to the gospel by faithfully and lovingly and carefully applying the gospel to our own hearts and to the hearts of those around us, both believers and unbelievers alike, then as we do that, darkness will be transformed into light. There will be change. As we evangelize and disciple, as we go on mission, as we encourage and exhort, as we rebuke and admonish and urge, and even at times we must discipline professing Christians in faithfulness to the light of the gospel, then darkness is transformed into light. That we, at walking as children of light, get to be agents of change, not just in our own lives or in the church, but to the world around us. And then we come to that verse that ties it to the resurrection. Chapter 4, verse 14. And in this passage, Paul interprets and applies several passages from Isaiah in light of Christ. It says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now it's interesting that in Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Paul takes this passage as well as others in Isaiah that speak of the glory of the Lord rising upon the people, which results in those who were once living in darkness now coming to the light, not just people coming to the light, but even kings to the brightness of your rising. And he says, that is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the glory of the Lord that shines upon you. And as you walk in the light, faithful to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, you will shine. And as you shine, darkness will be overcome. It will be transformed into light. And you will stand as lampstands in the midst of darkness in homes and in villages and among streets and among nations to go out and proclaim the beauty of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ for the glory and the hope and the life and the redemption and the light of all. Guys, this is glorious. All because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can go out in confidence knowing that the gospel transforms lives. I'm not bound by this sin anymore. It doesn't capture me. If if there's darkness in my heart, it can be overcome by the light. If I see my brother in sin, I can go to him faithfully and plead with him to turn to the light, turn away from the darkness, and he will by God's grace because the light is more powerful than the darkness. And as we shine as lights, as we are faithful to the gospel in, in our words, and in our deeds and in our actions, we stand as light to those proclaiming to those in darkness. Come into the light. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the grave. And Christ will shine on you. Unbelievable hope. See, no matter who you are, you here today, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, and if you're not a follower of Christ, I'm really glad that you're here. We can all respond to those words. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And we can do that today because Christ is risen from the dead. The light of the gospel can penetrate the darkness in our hearts, changing us and transforming us from darkness to light. And we know this is true because Christ is risen from the dead. We can go out in confidence with this message of light of Christ to a dark and dying world to give life and to give light because Christ is risen from the dead. And so, my friends, awake. Awake, arise, and expose darkness to light. Now, I have just walked us through the basic message of Ephesians. These four points sum up the entirety of what Ephesians is really all about. Jesus is the exalted Savior and Lord over all. We have been made alive together with Christ. We've been united together in the church to help each other to grow to maturity in Christ. And we can now expose darkness to the light of Christ. And none of this... None of this is possible 
apart from our union with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We have new life because Christ was raised to life. Friends, believe. Believe and see the effects of the resurrection on your lives. Let's pray together. Father God, we read in, in your word that when you speak, you give light to darkness, you give life to those things which are dead, that you transform, that you shape, that you change, and you have done so to reveal your glory to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be challenged to think deeply about who Jesus is. About why his resurrection from the grave is so essential. But most importantly, that we would believe and be changed so that we might see these effects of his resurrection in our lives. That we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who who has died and was raised, the exalted Lord over all that we would recognize your great love for us and how you have made us new creations in Christ, that he has taken on our sin and he has freed us and delivered us and given us life and hope that we might not be bound by it anymore, but actually might be transformed in such a way as to display his light, his glory to the world around us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be serious about that, that we would unite together to help one another grow to maturity in Christ because this was your idea and your plan to help us show forth your wisdom, your power, your glory, your excellence to each other and to the world around us. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to do that. And we thank you that it's possible because Christ is risen. It's in his name we pray. Amen.